Hello, and welcome to Michigan Opera Theater's Opera Here podcast. My name is Austin Stewart with the Michigan Opera Theater. This Opera Here podcast is here to give you the inside scoop of the opera production scene on stage at Michigan Opera Theater, to dive into some of the stories, get to know the characters, and learn a little bit about what happens behind the scenes with some guest artists that visit us here in the studio. We're thankful to WDET and to Jake Near for their help in producing the Opera Here podcast along with Michigan Opera Theater. So today, we are here to speak about Giuseppe Verdi's opera Rigoletto, which will be showing at Michigan Opera Theater beginning October 14th in 2017. This kicks off our 1718 season, a season of smash hits in opera. And this piece is just a delightful perennial favorite that we get to return to this season. A real quick brief synopsis. I'm going to see how quickly I can do this. Mm. The Duke of Mantua, a philanderer, has seduced and then disposed of in the same evening Count Monterone's daughter. Monterone appears in the court demanding retribution for the dishonor done to his daughter. And in return, the Duke's jester, Rigoletto, turns and points out the old man's hypocrisies. In return, as any good old Italian forebear of a community would do, he throws a curse on the Duke and Rigoletto the jester. Well, Rigoletto is quite superstitious of this, and returning one evening to his home, he confronts his daughter, Gilda. Gilda has been locked away by her father since childhood, which Rigoletto has done in an effort to protect her from the evils of court life and of being preyed upon by the Duke of Mantua. However, in a wonderful aria caro nome, she reveals that she has recently met a young student by the name of Gualtier Malde. Gualtier Malde, however, is the pseudonym that the Duke of Mantua gives himself in getting to know Gilda, hoping that his reputation will not precede him. In turn, Rigoletto begins to plan a plot against the life of the Duke to protect his daughter and to hopefully do away with the curse that was thrown upon them by Monterone. He goes in search of an assassin, which he conveniently finds in the character of Sparfucile. He arranges for Sparfucile and his sister, Madalena, to arrange a tryst for them at a local tavern. Rigoletto and Gilda are outside of the tavern, Father is trying to instill in the daughter the sense of impropriety that the Duke possesses and his willing nature to seduce any woman he meets. Gilda is heartbroken. She remains, however, at the scene and listens in on the conversation between Sparfucile, the assassin, and his sister. Madalena has fallen in love, naturally, with the Duke, and so she begs her brother, Sparfucile, to not take his life. Sparfucile agrees, but only if someone else should knock at the tavern door before the stroke of midnight so that he can take that person's life in place of the duke. Conveniently, for them, Gilda has overheard this, and in a sign of selflessness she dresses herself in an old man's clothes, knocks at the door, and takes Sparfucile's dagger in place of the duke. As Sparfucile hands over the body bag with Gilda inside of it, Rigoletto is astonished to hear from the distance the Duke's calling card, La Donne Mobile, that beloved aria, and realizes that the individual in the bag cannot be the Duke. He opens it and to his horror finds that it is daughter Gilda. Her final lines are sighed, anguished sighs of relief as she expresses her 
her forever abiding love for the Duke and her wish that her father could have realized the same love for her in return. Oh, it's so sad. It's so sad and so unrealistic. So terrifying. <laughs> so today I have the distinct privilege of being joined in the studio by Miss Diane Schaff. Diane, hello, how are you? I'm great. great. I'm so glad to be here. Diane is a member of the Michigan Opera Theater Chorus and a member of our touring ensemble with Community Program. And I'm so honored to have her tell this story of Rigoletto with me. What? Um, what the heck? Right? Like, who came up with this story? Whose story is this? This is a fantastic topic, actually. Yeah. So this was originally a play written by Victor Hugo. Oh, it was. The wonderful author of The Hunchback of Notre Dame, so many other works. He was also a dramatist. And this work premiered originally in Paris in 1833. However, it just barely made it past the censors. And it had one performance before it was canceled. Um, It was canceled because it was perceived that the Duke of Mantua too closely resembled oh, the, the local official, the reigning king uh, <laughs> of France at the time, and Oops. so it was banned from the stage. And mm. there was actually a fifty-year moratorium placed. Fifty-year, fifty-year moratorium placed on this play, wow. um, which was called Le Roi s'amuse. The king amuses himself, uh. and so that is how, that's how the original story came into being. So the irony here is that when. Verdi gets this commission from Teatro La Fenice in Venice in 1850. He's heard about this story. He knows the kind of row that it had created some years earlier. And he was really interested throughout his career in in a couple of big themes that Rigoletto really touches upon. Um, One is the hand of fate. So we have in this story, you know, a quintessential superstitious Italian, you know, background. Mm, uh, mm. Pace to all the Italians out there, but the Italians really take very seriously their superstitions. <laughs> and to have a curse <laughs> thrown on you... Um, it's a big deal. By, ...is a big deal, especially by somebody of, you know, a, an esteemed elder in the community like Count Montorone. <laughs> so, yeah, Verdi gets this story from Hugo... And it actually doesn't seem like it's going to float with the censors either in Venice. Mm. Uh, And so what they are forced to do is that Giuseppe Verdi and his librettist, um, Francesco Maria Piave, are forced to throw the story back in time. And so that's how the original story winds up in the 15th century in Mantua. Because Mantua during the 15th century was ruled by the Gonzaga family. And the last Gonzaga heir had died out about 20 years earlier. So if you want to have a story that is particularly politically fraught, um, note to future composers and librettists, make sure that you throw it in some distant ancient locale where any heirs are no longer around to sue you. Uh, mm, it gets, good luck with that. Yeah, it gets you past the censors. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And so that's exactly what Verdi had to do here. So yeah. it's always, it feels that's kind of funny how they wind up in 15th century Mantua. You know, one of the best things about Verdi is that he he's always choosing these fantastic playwrights. 
for his subjects. He like, knew the best. He knew the best, and he was attracted to the best, and he knew he knew stories that that could um, cross time like that. You know, he could throw it way in the back, and uh, and it would mean just as much, in fact, more, and be able to get the points across um, in, in a way that didn't offend the people who were paying for it. You know, um, right. something we could all learn a little bit about in the arts. Um, but, you know, like I I think he he was genius for a variety of reasons, uh, not the least of which is his obvious composing, but just the fact that what he chose, where he chose it, when he chose it, how he chose to put it. Oh, he's so good. All right, so let's go on to talking <laughs> just a little bit about some of the music from Giuseppe Verdi's Rigoletto. So we're going to start with just a brief little excerpt from the prelude to this work. Um, it's not, you know, grand overture-like in the sense of Mozart or Rossini, especially the master of Italian overture, but this prelude still gives us um, a very strong insight and a direct, uh, maybe a direct insight into Verdi's sentiment about fate and about predestination as it applies to this story. So in this prelude, you will hear a rhythmic gesture that is repeated by a brass choir in the orchestra. And this is what's known as the fate motive in Rigoletto. Now, it's really interesting because... The idea of fate, and uh, specifically here really of this curse, which is, you know, the vehicle of fate, Mm. it returns throughout the libretto. But Verdi doesn't extend the musical idea actually past the first act. So we don't hear the fate motto past act one. It's referred to, and the curse is always on Rigoletto's mind. Right, sure. But it drops off musically. So why I think Verdi preferred and decided to perhaps just let the motto fall off was his sentiment that as a composer, well, actually really rather as an individual, as a person who's had these tragic events happen in his life, he has no say in fate, in his fate. Uh, He can't control that. And so unlike how, you know, Maybe he could have changed these in little ways and let them keep showing up here and there. He's kind of saying, this represents fate. I don't have any control over it. Mm. So it's easier to just let it fall away. Mm. And it's always there in your mind. It is so striking when you first hear these chords. That... Even when the curse is mentioned later in the opera, you still hear this kind of rhythmic knocking Mm. as he references it later on. The other wonderful part about this brief episode um, is it really gives you an idea of how incredibly novel Verdi's orchestral writing is in Rigoletto. He really starts to use the orchestra at this point in his career 
as its own distinct character. Huh. It's not there as a complemental. It really starts to interplay with the characters. It starts to converse with them throughout. It's more... They're subconscious. It's They're... more immediately their subconscious. Interesting. Exactly. And I think that actually the next two examples that we're going to listen oh, to really represent that, that yeah. subconscious in the orchestra. So the first of those is the introductory aria for the Duke of Mantova. This is Questa o Quella, in which the Duke says that I'll take this girl or I'll take that girl. They're all the same to me. He's really playing up his desire and his affinity for this life of debauchery and right. machismo and philandering and kind of going on to the next the next thing that interests him. But this is performance on his part. Mm. Um, this is happening mm. in his court. He is, we can imagine that this is actually sung by him, maybe at a bacchanal. Mm -hmm. And he's performing for his courtiers. So while he's saying these things, there's also this character that the Duke has established for himself in the court as being this kind of brutish rake. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that he's just kind of there to debauch the society yeah. that's around him. Um, and he's kind of showing off his power, yeah. right? I mean, this is him, this is him basically saying, I'm at this status, I'm at this level in society. And nothing and, can take me down. And you can't really say anything about it because yeah. you're not the Duke. Go ahead. Curse me if you want to, but I'm fine. I will be fine. I'm the Duke. Um, which is, you know, but does the orchestra have something to say? Does it uh, betray his bravado? Hmm. That's a good question. Sorry, I didn't mean to question. put you on the spot there. But I, I was curious. I think it that wouldn't that be the, very interesting. The, what the, what the, the orchestra is doing more so in Questo Aquella is showing more of um, his kind of juvenile disposition. Mm. It's very playful. Mm. There's nothing particularly serious to this music. And we already know, just coming out of that very serious Aha. prelude, I see, I see, I see. that Verdi can write remarkably serious orchestral music. Right, and then we go, we launch into this mm, Boom, surface, chuck, chuck, boom, right, chuck, chuck. Right, surface level nothingness. Exactly. I see, I see, I see. So this is kind of the, the Duke's vapidness yeah. in the orchestra. Signifying nothing. Okay, very cool. Singing this excerpt, Questo o Quella, we have the incredible Luciano Pavarotti from a recording late in his career. And then in the same way, but a slightly more angelic side to that um, juvenile nature, we meet Gilda then through her first aria, Caronome. She's 
just been left alone in her room. Um, her father's had a bit of a conversation with her. Rigoletto is, of course, very concerned about this curse, but Gilda doesn't know anything about it, and she's just kind of blissfully unaware about her father's life at court. But we do find out that she's recently met at church a young man, a young student, a poor student, of course, by the name of Gualtier Malde. And that's a pseudonym that's given by the Duke of Mantua to... Dun, dun, dun. Exactly. So he is going by this pseudonym mm-hmm. to hope that his prior actions don't precede him to Gilda. And what I love about this aria is that this is a cornerstone of the coloratura high soprano repertoire. Mm-hmm. Um, every young soprano learns this aria. It's a delightful melody. It is charismatic. It's virginal. It's angelic. Um, and what's so delightful about it is just the real honesty mm-hmm. that's in it. Uh, you can really imagine Gilda alone in her room with her diary, with the lock on it that she keeps around her mm-hmm. you know, necklace, and that only she gets to go into her diary. And you open up her diary, and in this aria, it's basically like just seeing the name Gualtier Malde scrolled on pages of pages right. of, mm-hmm. with like hearts around Gualtier exactly. Malde. Exactly. And so in this, she, she says, Caro nome, dearest name. And she's inviting it to be inscribed on her heart. She's saying that it just, it's the taste, the feel of first love, mm-hmm. um, which understandably with a father like Rigoletto, she might really be experiencing for the first time in the real world. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and again, you know, you mentioned that they're both juvenile, right? Um, but hers But has in very this, different ways. Yeah, yeah, and hers has this purity and this grounding. I mean, even that's that bum-bum-bum-bum-bum, right? You know, it's coming from the bottom and going up. You know, it's just floating. Um, and and the, the tone, I mean, this is why we look for the Gilda that has these gorgeous bell-like tones is because it, uh, it just portrays that innocence um, in such a different way than, you know, silly old bravado. Um, and I think what's so devastating about this yeah. on that point yeah. is her fall. Yeah. By the time we get oh. to the end of the opera, one commentator in Verdi's day wrote that her last lines were as if somebody had hacked them apart. Oh. That her breath was just this right. kind of, as if it was being pulled out of her. Um, so to go from this absolutely angelic entrance piece to the state of Gilda's being in the last the moments scene. of her oh. life... Um, in the last scene, this is a story where it's it's really challenging to understand who's the hero, who's the anti-hero, who's sure. the villain. Sure. Well, even as you were saying about the Duke, you know, um, he ch- chooses a different name so that his sad, sick, cad way doesn't betray him to her. But also, I mean... The truth is, we are all two people. You know, we are all an outward performance and an and an inner. And and Gilda allows him to be this beautiful soul because mm. she sees him, 
and he he can be seen by her, and mm-hmm. um, and he can wear that that hat differently. Um, and what a wonderful gift, honestly, to the Duke um, is her love of his soul, and that's what she sees. This rendition of Caronome is sung by the exquisite Dame Joan Sutherland. And so after this delicate meeting between the Duke and Gilda, Rigoletto finds out that Gilda is in the palace of the Duke. No, no. And that she has been brought there by the courtiers of the Duke. Now, the courtiers of the Duke have done this in part to get back at Rigoletto because he is... um, He's mean. He's exhibited not very nice words to them in the past. So they've abducted Gilda, who they don't even know is his daughter at this point. That's right. Yeah, they think that she's some younger lover of Rigoletto. Oh, that's right. And so they bring Gilda into the palace. They basically deliver her to Mm -hmm. the person that Rigoletto is, like, determined she shouldn't ever meet, the Duke. And all of a sudden they've had this love duet, and the Rigoletto doesn't even know that they've had the love duet. And he comes in and he storms into the court. And Rigoletto has one of the most impressive scenes Mm -hmm. that... Verdi writes in his entire career, and at the heart of it is this aria, Cortigiani Villarazza, in which Rigoletto rails against the courtiers. He rails against, by extension, the aristocracy, against the upper class, against those individuals that, for him, have made the world such a difficult place to be. This performance of Cortigiani Villarazza Danata is sung by Ettore Bastiani. In the original Victor Hugo, there's a preface. Hugo wrote this blistering defense of the work. And he asks these questions. He says, is the play immoral? Do you think so? Is it the subject? But then think about it. Tribue, who becomes Rigoletto in the Verdi, Mm. Tribue is deformed. He is unhealthy. He is the court buffoon. There's a threefold misery then that plagues him and makes him evil. He hates the king because he is the king. The nobles because they are nobles. And he hates ordinary men because they weren't born with humps on their backs like he was. Mm. His only pastime is set the nobles unceasingly against the king. That's all that he can do. Mm -hmm. His power is there. What he's trying to do is he wants to set the courtiers against the king, crushing the weaker um, by way of the stronger. And he depraves the king, which is the duke here, to the extent that he corrupts him. He corrupts him by keeping the naysayers at bay who should be the ones that step up and say that 
this power has corrupted the duke. But Rigoletto is conveniently there to point out always their hypocrisies and to hold their own past misdeeds over their head. Sure. So he he is the cause in a lot of ways of the depravity and the corruption that has come about because of the Duke's power. Well, and in the end, to a degree, like encouraging the Duke to keep it on. Yeah. You know, keep doing that. And, uh, oh boy. And it's convenient until it gets to be your own daughter, right? Well, you know. Right. And so that's, that's the curse, right? There and it is. He's why, already cursed. That's why yeah. he's already, he's done the cursing to himself. To himself. Basically, Rigoletto here is rushing into this scene and he's saying, you're all the same. Like, I have made all of these opportunities for you to take some power unto yourself Uh because he doesn't understand that he's really opened the way for the corruption. And so he's there and he's, he's railing against the courtiers, but they're only in this place of kind of deprivation because of basically the freedom to do so that he's opened up in this court. Right. Oh, gosh. Devastating. And, you know, the other thing is, I mean, to a certain extent, right, he's he's created this situation for them to, I mean, bringing his daughter, they didn't know it was his daughter. If they had known it was his daughter, they never would have done that. Yeah, if they'd have known he had a daughter, period. And now she probably each one of them is damned there. to hell for doing that. Yeah. Oh, terrible. And he did that. If they'd just been honest with them and told them, I have a daughter. I'm a nice right. man. They wouldn't have tried to take advantage of him and, and no. get back at him. Mm. No, that's the sad, that's the devastating thing. And in a way, you know, that's why Rigoletto can still be called a hero in a way, of the story, at least the protagonist, I guess. I'm not sure where he falls in that that spectrum. But, Mm. you know, he's he's kind of there, and he doesn't even know that he's a pawn of his own actions. Yeah, right? Yeah. As we, again... Yeah, again. We all... As we kind of all... Futs through. I mean, we always trip over our own selves in these situations like, ooh, oh, I did make this bed. And I guess I have to lie in it. Uh, that realization for everyone, everybody in that darn audience is going to be sitting there going, oh, yes, I made that bed. <laughs> and that was a terrible bed. <laughs> I did not enjoy lying in that bed. Um, but what a, and, and oh, boy, uh, I just don't even have the words for what kind of an experience that is to find out that, in fact, not only are you the observer and the very aware person, but you actually are learning something about yourself and what kind of evil lays, lies within. And then you have to forgive yourself for that? Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. Poor Rigoretto. And so that brings us to probably one of the most beloved melodies of this work, La Donne Mobile. Yeah, 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 yeah. Everybody knows it. Everybody Everybody. Sings, my kids know it. My 10-year-old, he knows this oh, tune. Good, good. Hope he doesn't know what it's about. Nope. Quite yet. Okay, Nothing. good. Yeah, this is the calling card of the Duke of Mantova. Um, he's got this incredible kind of bravura moment. He's been in the tavern at this point with... Marlena, uh, he is 
in this position of power, but again, he's kind of switched back to his performance. Sure. Like, this is another piece that's not really the Duke. This is the, the rakish Duke performing. La Donne Mobile is sung by Richard Leach, our director of community programs at Michigan Opera Theater from a recording early in his career. We still don't really know if this is the person he wants to be. Sure. Um, it's the person who he knows he has to be. He has exactly. To, you know. He's kind of he's made this right. you know, reputation for himself. Sure. A warrior king has to, you know, wield a sword constantly. Whatever. He's, he's this rakish whatever to show him, show his power. And so he, he turns around and he basically starts... Um, all of a sudden, he this experience with Madalena, who's you know piqued his interest, um, and he's saying that woman is flighty; they're like a feather. They move through the wind, um, always lovely, pretty face, tears when they need to be crying, smiles when they need to be happy, and he really just kind of unnecessarily reduces women in this moment. But it's again part of this performance Mm -hmm. of him. That's very kind of you to say that about him. That it's his performance. But we saw that. I mean, that's why we had that duet. So we could see that there's more to do with this guy. And so we had that duet and now we've got this moment and we've been thrown back and forth between like so many different sides of this character. We've been thrown back and forth with Rigoletto. So many sides of that character. We see a father who thinks that he's being tender and protective he doesn't realize that he's taking away the quality of life and experiences that Jolda is longing for. Mm-hmm. Um, he thinks that he's protecting her mm-hmm. from the outside world. Unfortunately, it's an outside world that he's helped make more malevolent. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. it's we kind of get thrown back and forth between all these different sides of those, these characters. And I think that one of the biggest questions that comes out in the end is... Who's the villain? This is the tough question because you've got the rakish duke, but then you also know that he's kind of a sweet guy and actually might be wanting to reform himself mm-hmm. for Gilda. Sure. You get that little insight. Then there's Rigoletto, who's trying to be a protective father, but then he also conveniently knows an assassin. Right. Why does he conveniently know an assassin? You know, I mean, is right. this is this not his first time at at this game? Right. Um, who else has he had assassinated for the Duke, perhaps? And now sure. he's or for and, other courtiers yeah. or whoever. And you so know. now he's turning to a known entity. Um, Gilda is, you know, if there's a hero to this story, I, I think that she's just the victim in every way. Um, and you know, well, except that. Except that she steps up. She does, yeah. Right? Yeah. She's she, not a victim. She's choosing. No, you're right. She is choosing that moment. Yeah. However misguided. She's choosing that moment where 
she's like, I'm sorry, but I'm here. I'm choosing. Love is going to win. Love is, you know, for me, love is going to be the victor of my story. I did this for love. This is all about love for me. And, you know, you guys, you, you guys cannot take this from me. I'm going to prove to you all again that love is actually the key and will save the day. Her father's not dead. Her love is not dead, right? She's dead, but you know, I mean, like, it was out of love. But it was out of love, and she saved the people that she loved. She did all the the ultimate sacrifice, mm-hmm. therefore, for love. Um, and Beautiful. maybe in so doing, she creates the possibility for redemption for both of them. Wow! Mm, right? Right? I, I like that. Bella Filia dell'Amore here is sung by Dame Joan Sutherland as Gilda, Huguette Turango as Madalena, the Duke is Luciano Pavarotti, and Cheryl Milnes sings Rigoletto. I think you're going to have to attend the opera. And, oh, and, I will uh, be there. In, and make your own decision. I will be there. Especially after this especially. conversation, I am telling so, you. I am so psyched to see this. And this production, too, uh, set in the 50s. Yeah, like, so let's tell oh, you a little bit about delicious. this production. Delicious. So if you're familiar already with Rigoletto, you'll know that the traditional setting is 15th century Mantua. But this is, as Diane just mentioned, has been moved up to the 1950s in New York in Little Italy. And so it's a whole new take on some of the tensions that were felt in that culture um, as there was a huge influx, of course, of recent European uh, emigres Mm -hmm. forced out by World War II, Mm. the huge expansion of that community Mm -hmm. uh, in fighting between uh, mob bosses. This is this is the age that, you know, it's Capone is not uh-uh. around and a player anymore, uh-uh. but it's still underground and mm-hmm. it's still determining a lot of, a lot of the factions that are going on in life in Little Italy and um, Italian communities across the country yeah. at this time. Mm-hmm. And what is Definitely. and what is what does all that come back to? La familia. La familia. Right? That's the what's family. important. Right? That's what it, that's what's important. That's what drives everything. That's uh what what holds us. That's what tethers mm-hmm. us. That's what defines us. And that's what Verdi's searching for. Mm. I think still. Mm. You know, he's still he's still looking for those familial stories that that he doesn't get. And so he's wanting to tell them. And it, all varieties of Dysfunction and function within families. Right. That's what he's after in these stories. Right. Oh, he's so good. <laughs> well, we are so excited to bring this updated production of Rigoletto to the stage of Michigan Opera Theater beginning on Saturday, October 14th. We have just an incredible cast lined up. Joshua Guerrero will be singing The Duke. He's had already great successes with this role. 
Roland Wood on opening night is singing the role of Rigoletto. So Young Park is our Gilda. Now, if you happen to catch the magic flute two seasons ago at Michigan Opera Theater, So Young was the young soprano who was flown in on a day's notice to cover the role of the Queen of the Night. And I stood so, next to her while she did that. Amazing. It was amazing. So we are so excited to have So Young, an old friend of mine, um, coming to Michigan Opera Theater to sing Julda. You'll also see on stage several of our studio artists at Michigan Opera Theater, including Brianna Elise Hunter as Giovanna, Harry Greenleaf as Marulo, Eric Van Heinegen as Count Ciprano, and this production will be conducted by our esteemed principal conductor, Stephen Lord, under the stage direction of Elaine Tyler Hall. I'm Austin Stewart for Michigan Opera Theatre. Thank you, Diane, for joining me today. My pleasure. Our great thanks go to WDET and our producer, Jake Neer, all of the community programs and education staff members at Michigan Opera Theatre. We look forward to seeing you for Verdi's Rigoletto at the Detroit Opera House October 14 through October 22. We'll see you at the opera. <laughs>